take your scriptures and turn back to James chapter 2, the portion that we read already this morning. And we've been on Sunday mornings going through James and looking at it as the test of a nonfiction faith. What is a real faith? How do you know? And we've taken so far the trials test, the temptation test, the Bible test, the impartiality test, and this morning we're going to talk about the faith test. Um, In our passage, it's pretty obvious as we read it that this is all about an interaction. What is the interaction between our faith and our works? Faith and works are mentioned, if you want to circle them, you can as you go through it. Uh, Faith and works are mentioned together 10 times in 13 verses. It is obviously the main point. Um, James, in this paragraph, insists that if you have a real faith, a a living faith, a non-fiction faith... It will be demonstrated in the reality of the works that come out of it. Now, there's a problem, and I've heard it for many, many years, um, that people will use this as invalidating the Bible because it's not consistent. And here's why they say it. Because if you read Paul's writings, Paul says that Christians are justified by faith alone and not by works. And then James comes along, and he says... You know, Christians are justified by works, and it's not just by faith alone. And so people say, see, one author of the Bible says this, and the other one says this, and it's a contradiction, therefore the Bible can't be true. Well, let me tell you, which is it? On the screen, if you've ever seen, have you seen these pictures that you use for psychological testing? Now look at that screen and tell me what you see. How many see a young woman? Okay. How many see an old woman? Well, see way less. But can you see the older woman? See the cheekbone on the younger woman? That's the nose of the older one. And her chin goes down below a little bit. You see it now? Some of you are going like, I don't see anything. (laughs) Right? So you see that? That's the nose and the chin comes down here. And that's the hair with kind of a hat she's wearing. You see how the older woman, you see it finally? Okay, forget it. All right. Take my word for it, right? There are two women. That's one picture. It's the same picture, right? But there are two women in it. One younger, one older. Now see, that's kind of an example of what I think the Bible's doing. Paul says one thing, and this is the perspective that he gives. And when Paul talks about justification, he's talking about how someone is made right with God. When they're not right with God... This is how they're made right with God. It's by faith alone. In other words, you don't earn your salvation. You can't work for it. There's nothing that you can do to have it. It's not because you're baptized, catechized, go to church, keep the sacraments, you take the Lord's Supper. It's not, you can't work for it. And that's what Paul emphasizes. But James, because James and Paul got together, if you remember Acts 15, They had a a big, huge church council on this very issue about how someone is saved. Do you have to be Jewish? Do you have to do the works of the law? And they came away from this, that it's faith alone in Christ. And that's what Paul talks about when he talks about justification. It's faith alone. You don't have to work your way to get it, to be made right. James, same picture, different perspective. James, when he talks about justification... He's talking about how someone demonstrates that they have been made right. Not that you're being made right, but when you have been made right, how do you demonstrate it? And James would say, you do it by your works. 
So James is very strong this morning, and he would tell us this, that a mere profession of faith is not enough to prove that you actually have it. He says you have to demonstrate it, the assurance of it, the proof of it, the true evidence of it is the way that your life has been transformed. Philip McLaughlin, who was the assistant of Martin Luther, put it very succinctly and memorable for us when he said this, that when you're trusting in Christ, it is by faith alone, but it will not be a faith that remains alone. See, you trust in him alone by faith, but it's not that it will remain alone. There will always be good works in it. Now, James has made it very clear in this passage in chapter 2 already, and we've covered it, that he totally agrees with the Apostle Paul. James 2 verse 5 says, remember, that God has chosen the poor in this world, listen, rich in faith, rich in faith and heirs who will inherit the kingdom so what does James think about salvation? How do you get saved? How do you get made right with God? Well, it's a, it, you're rich in faith. You have to put your faith and trust in Christ. But how is it? You don't work for that. He says you're an heir of it. You know anything about inheritance? You don't get it. You don't work for your inheritance. You don't work to be inherited in the, in the kingdom. He says you're an heir. How do heirs get the fortune? They're born into it. See, they don't do something for it. They're born in And the same with Christians. See, we are reborn into our family of God and the kingdom of God by faith alone and Christ alone. So we don't earn our salvation, we're heirs of it. So I say all that this morning because I want you to be very clear as we go through the rest of this text that this is a text about how you can know you are saved or justified. Not how you get saved or justified, but how you can know it. How you can know this morning, and this is what I want you to do while I'm talking. James is going to give two options of what kind of faith you had, and they are both real. You either have a dead faith, which cannot save you, or a alive faith that cannot save you. And he's going to go through this text before, for his readers and for us, he wanted them to think clearly about it, okay? Because he wants you to settle that fact when you leave this morning here, is your faith dead or is it alive? And so he's going to build on the preceding paragraph, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, because there's a lot of verbal links and things that are the same. In both paragraphs, he talks about his brothers, he talks about faith, he talks about someone who's poorly clothed, someone who needs to show their works by their love. A very important phrase in both 2, 8 and 19, he says, you do well, we're going to get to that. And about people who are called, there's all these similarities, and he's going to build on 2, 1 through 13 of what he's already said about what your faith looks like. And this is what I want you to, I'm not going to give you theory this morning alone, I'm not just going to tell you some teaching and truth. The Bible and James is very good at showing you what your life would look like if your faith is dead or your faith is alive. So let's unpack it this morning and let James show us. We're going to take a look at both of them, each individually, and unpack it. First of all, we're going to look at what James says about a dead faith. Would you look at verse 14 again? He says, what good is it? Now draw a line if you do this in your Bible. Verse 14 and down to verse 16, because it has the same little phrase, and that is, what good is it? <laughs> what good is it? He's going to tell you it's absolutely nothing. It, if you have, listen to what he says, if you do good, if your faith doesn't do good, it isn't any good. You hear what he's saying? If your faith doesn't do good, it isn't any good. What good is it? 
What does it profit, other versions say? It doesn't have any value. So faith that doesn't produce works is dead. It cannot save you. You may have gone down an aisle. You may have said a prayer. You may have done all the right words. But it doesn't prove anything. That's not where the assurance of salvation in the Bible comes. It is not looking back at what you said or might have said at the past. You're... Your assurance comes from looking forward or in the present to what your life has been like because of it. So he says, listen, he says it rhetorically. There's two rhetorical questions in 14 and 19. Here's the first one. Ready? Can that faith save you? A faith that doesn't have any works. A faith that never transforms your life. A faith that doesn't make a difference in how you live every day. Can that faith save you? And the rhetorical answer is no, it cannot. So he's going to, that's the principle, watch. Now he's going to tell you what that would look like in real living, real life. Look at the next verse. If a brother or sister, now not watch, not just a guy, but a girl, a widow. Remember we talked about the widows already? People who don't have anything. People who are on the low, lowest level of the social ladder, economic ladder. They don't have a lot, right? And you know them. And, and he would say, in your church. He says, if a brother or sister... He says, is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. Poorly clothed can either mean you don't have any clothes or you have such inadequate clothes that you're not going to be able to. And, and later on, the guy that meets the need or says he's going to meet the need says, be warmed and filled. That's kind of like the other side of this description. So these are people who have no clothes. It's very cold outside. And they don't have adequate clothing. They don't have jackets. They don't have second layers. They, don't have, they have bare, barely enough to cover them. And not only are they not clothed right, they don't have food. And, and daily food, only time it's ever used in the New Testament, is describing someone who doesn't even have the necessities of life. In other words, if someone doesn't help them, they're not going to su- survive. So we're not saying, hey, their cupboards aren't full. They need to have someone help them. With the gro-. No, they don't have a refrigerator, and they don't have anything to put in it. That's the idea of it. That's the condition of that person. And he says, and one of you says to them in your, in your church, one of you, go in peace. Now, go in peace is all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus even uses it. It's the, it's the way in the Jewish culture to say, hey, goodbye. <laughs> you know, basically, it's, 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 a, it's a greeting or an exit kind of phrase. And, and when someone's going to leave, you say, go in peace. Now, what they add to it, watch it. Go in peace, be warmed and filled. Now, it matters, passive verbs. It means they're not going to do it. They're expecting someone else to do it. And one commentator said that they even are pious about it. Like, hey, I'm not going to help you out, but I'm sure you can trust God. He'll help you out. So they see the need. They're aware of the need, but they don't lift a finger to meet the need. That's the illustration that James uses. He says to them without giving them the things for the body. You see the need. You don't do anything to meet the need. And here's what he says. What good is it? Remember, what, what good is that kind of faith? What kind of faith is that, that you could look at someone shivering and starving and not do anything to help them? Now, you might be saying like, wow, okay. Pastor Walker is saying that if I really want to prove that I'm a Christian, then I better do things for poor people and buy them some clothes and I better buy them some food. So as soon as the service is over today, I'm going to Walmart and I'm getting some stuff and I'm going to find somebody. Can I tell you, that's not what James is looking for. This is not an event. This isn't something that you just staple onto your life to say that you did it. 
James would say a loveless faith is a lifeless faith. He's not trying to say, hey, you put this on your to-do list tomorrow. No, he's not looking for something you do. He's telling you of what certain kind of person he's asking for or looking for. He wants you to be that kind of person. And here's what he says. When you have real faith, it makes you into that kind of person. It's not that you just say, hey, i got to do a couple good things to make sure my Christianity is real. That's not the idea. The idea is because my Christianity is real, I feel what poor people go through. So I show mercy to them, chapter 2, verse 13. I have a pulse for poor people. I don't do it to add to my spiritual resume. I do it because Jesus loved me, and I was poor, and he made me rich. So, so I see them a different way. And so let me translate it, verse 17. The Walker translation says, So faith toward God by itself, if it doesn't have works toward others, then real need is dead. So if you have faith vertically, and you said, I believe in God, and I'm trusting in Jesus, but you can look at people horizontally, and you don't lift a finger, and I don't mean just write a check, and that's good, but this is to meet their needs, that you actually have some relationship going on, that you have hands-on relationship, not just writing it in church. We all write checks, and we do it all the time, and it's a good thing. Keep doing it. But James is wanting more than that that you have some idea of who they are and what's going on in their lives. And he says, it's like a vital sign. It's like a vital sign, right? And, and so it's like, can I put it to you this way? It's like James is telling us, listen, I'm rushing you into the holy hospital, and, and I want to tell you that there are some vital signs. I want to check your faith to see if it's really alive. Now, when you get going go to the ER... And, and you're not responsive, they're going to check your vital signs. Body temperature, pulse rate, rate of breathing, blood pressure. They're going to go through all of these things and probably more. And you know what they're doing when they're doing that? They're checking if you are alive. Because if you're not, there's certain things they have to do. And if you are alive, then they'll do some different things, right? So James is saying, hey, this passage of Scripture is taking your spiritual vital signs. He's like the ER doctor, and he wants to see, do you have a spiritual pulse? Are there any signs of life in your faith, or is it dead? And that's why this entire paragraph, section 14, it begins and ends in verse 26 with dead. In verse 17, faith by itself, it does not have works, is dead. Verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Why does he start and end it with this? Because he wants you to know that there's a danger that you need to be aware of. He wants to warn you that there are people, even at Faith Baptist Church perhaps, who sit in pews, who say and think they have a real living faith, and the reality of it is it's dead. They don't have a pulse. There's no spiritual blood pressure taking place. And how do you know whether those vital signs are true or not true of you? Because of your response to people who have needs, he says. That's it. The vital sign of a living faith toward God is a demonstration of a heart and a love to meet the needs of poor people or needy people. So he says, here's the first vital sign. Here's the first thing, that you vertically love God and you love people. You have right words, but you also have right works that go with it. But the second one, if I can say it, is even more scary. It's right doctrine without right doing. 
In verse 18, he says, if you'll read it with me, here's the argument, the pushback. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. So there's two options. You either say, well, I have faith, but I don't have to have works, or I have faith, and I'll show you my faith by my works. James is going to tell us, beware. You believe that God is one? That's the Shema. That's the quotation of Deuteronomy 6, 4. Every Orthodox Jew, even to this day from Jesus' time before and till now, if you're Orthodox in the morning and the evening, you'll say this. Yah, I'm trying to say Hebrew. Israel, hero, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Everybody says that that is monotheism. They were in cult, surrounded by a culture of polytheism. Everybody else believed in multiple gods. And if you were Orthodox Jew, you would say, no, there's only one God. And that was the test of your orthodoxy. And here's what James says. Do you know that the demons are Orthodox? Do you know that? They believe in one God. He says, and if you believe in one God, you do well. Remember back in verse 8? If you keep the royal law, you do well. In other words, that's really good. But this little phrase, you do well, listen, here's what James wants. You got to do this this morning. He wants you to think deeper than just the superficiality or the surface of your life. He wants you to think deeper. Go deeper in your heart, deeper in your mind. Think about the real life that you live that nobody else knows, the real you. He's saying, think down there and, and know that you believe the right things and you have the right doctrine. See, it's creedal Christianity, and that's good as far as it know, goes. But creedal Christianity can turn into corpse Christianity if there isn't works that go with our doctrine. And so we put our doctrinal statement on the internet, which is fantastic, and we need to spell it out because what we believe really, really matters. But can I tell you this? It doesn't matter as much if it doesn't be followed up with or be supported by or accompanied by the way that we live as a church. So he says, you believe in one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. One of my favorite Puritans, Jonathan Edwards, wrote a sermon on September 28, 1752. And here's the title of it. True Grace Distinguished from the Experience of Devils. We don't have titles like that anymore. But in it, let me quote. He said, let me show you two things that demons have that are absolutely fine. They are perfectly good, Edward says. But I want you to see that you can have them and still be no better than a demon. The first one, he says, is sound doctrine. Demons have been to the greatest seminary, Jonathan Edwards says. The greatest seminary in the universe, it's in heaven. They have been in the actual throne room of God. Edward says they know sound doctrine more about God than any person who will ever live on this planet. So Edward says, and there's nothing wrong with that. Get all the knowledge you can. Study the Bible and know it the best you possibly can. But then he says this, but realize this, it doesn't necessarily qualify you to be anything more than a demon. You can be a demon and have that, he says. The second thing is that demons have, not just doctrine, he says, and they don't just believe in God, but they respect the power of God. Did you see what James says? The devils or demons believe and shudder. See, it's not that they have this 
belief about God and have all the orthodoxy and it doesn't affect them because they hate him. No, they shudder. And the word means to tremble in fear. You know, demons know everything about God more than you and I know. And you know, they do respond to that knowledge. And you know what it is? They shake. They are afraid that God is going to judge them because he is. They're scared of it. And they shake and, they sh- and they, they're troubled by it. You know why? Because they know exactly what he is capable of. They know what he can do. So let me infer from Edward's sermon, if that is true, that demons believe and shudder, then you know it's very possible for people, maybe even some here today, you know how great God is, and you are even scared of his judgment. I was saved at 12 years old, under a sermon that was preached about hell, and it scared me to death. And I can tell you this, that can scare you. You can know about God, and that night I shuddered. And because of that, there are people who become very moral people. They become very religious people because they're afraid of what God can do, and they shudder. But let me tell you what James is saying. Shuddering faith does not necessarily equal saving faith. Shuddering in response to God and his judgment is not a vital sign, James would say. It doesn't make sure that you are Christian. Shuddering is not in and of itself salvation. Fear of hell does not prove you are going to heaven. And for the longest time, when I shuddered at 12, I didn't get any assurance to my salvation until I was 15. You know why? Because just it's good to fear God and fear hell, believe me, but that's not enough. It's not enough. See, if you have a real faith, a nonfiction faith, you are alive toward God and you're alive toward others. And you not only shudder, but you live differently. You love differently. And James says that's really what it looks like. He doesn't look for a mechanical change in your life where I'm going to go get some stuff today and give it to someone poor. He's looking for an organic change, something that's inside of you, that when you see messed up people and people's lives who are messed up, it doesn't repulse you, and it's not the smell of them that bothers you or how bad off or what they might be into that bothers you. It's that they don't know Jesus that bothers you or they don't have enough that bothers you, and you have something like a switch that's flipped on inside because of your faith in Jesus, and you are moved by them. You are broken by marginal people who don't have any clue about God or their their needs are so great that they can't meet them. See, that's what James says real faith looks like. It's a vital sign. It's not just something you do on the outside. It's something you are on the inside. So if that wasn't enough, James goes on to say, let me give you two final biblical examples, and that's where verses 20 through 26 come in. And he gives you two Old Testament, one of Abraham and one of Rahab. And he wants to tell you when you have true faith on the inside, it'll come out on the outside. It's true on the inside, you'll have works on the outside. And this is the difference. A dead faith doesn't have that. So now he's going to tell you, I've shown you what a dead faith is like. Let me show you what an alive faith is like. And he starts off in verse 20 with this. He says, do you want to be shown? Let me show you, you foolish person that's not what we would want to say, if I started calling everybody a fool here, you probably wouldn't like it too much. But James says, Proverbs says, that you don't have wisdom. You're not seeing things like God sees them. 
Because if you see that you can have faith, but you don't have to worry about your life and the works in it, it's foolish. It's empty. And that's what, it, and it goes on to say that that kind of faith is useless. Useless. It's hollow. There's no, it's just a shell. It's a sham so that you can feel good, he says. But let me show you what one that's filled in. It's full of mercy and kind. Let me show you what it looks like when your faith is real. And so he's going to say a workless faith is a worthless faith. If it, you don't have a faith that works, it doesn't really work. Let me show you by Abraham and Rahab's lives. Now, you know that these two people in the Old Testament are about as opposite as they possibly can get. You've got Abraham, who is the head of the Jewish people, and you've got Rahab, who wasn't Jewish at all. She was a Gentile. She was a Canaanite. You have a guy who's the friend of God. You've got one woman who's the enemy of God. You've got a male and then a female. You have someone who was rich, someone who was poor. You have someone, Abraham, who was moral. Rahab was immoral. And the reason he uses these two polar extreme examples is he wants you to know this morning, whoever you are in this auditorium, black or white, male or female, rich or poor, moral, immoral, Jew or Gentile, he wants you to know that being justified by faith and have works that go with it is not partial to any person. It's not that we have one standard for this group and another for everybody. It doesn't matter who you are, Abraham or Rahab. This is God's standard. This is how you are living and showing that you're right with him because both are equally justified. Three times in the last paragraph, 21, 24, and 25, he talks about both of them being justified. How were they justified? Stay with me. In Abraham, it says in verse 21, when he offered. Rahab in verse 25 says, when she welcomed or received the spies. He says, when Abraham offered his son, when Rahab welcomed the spies and hid them, it completed their faith by their works. And the word completed in that text doesn't mean that they're equal partners. It doesn't mean you have faith and works and you have to have equal amount of both. No, it's you have faith and works assist it. It's the assistant to faith. In other words, it proves it. It supports it. In other words, when you claim to have faith, you know what works come in and their part is this. It proves that it's valid, he says. So Abraham offered up his son Isaac on the altar and gave him up. Now listen, did you see the difference? You see the difference between a dead faith and a living faith? Here's what it is. A dead faith will obey God for what you can get out of him or what he will help you avoid in life. Let me give you some examples. A person who has a dead faith will say, God, you know, I follow you, God, and I come to church because, you know, I really need a job right now. And I, I'm really got some big bills I can't pay. So I follow God and, and I ask him and, for, and I come to church because I want God on my good side so I can get the job that I think I need. Or you know what? I'm lonely. I'm single. I'm not married. I really like a wife or a husband. And so God, I really want you to work. And so I kind of do some religious things when I come to church or things I can avoid. If I follow God and I come to church and I try to do the right thing that maybe I won't get cancer, maybe I won't have financial problems, maybe all the emotional stress in my life and all the things that's going, maybe that'll settle down and I'll have some peace finally. But see, that's what a dead faith does. It uses God, as A.W. Tozer says, 
as a utilitarian God. I use them to get what I want. And that's what a dead faith does. It does it because you might get something from God or avoid something from God. But you know what a living faith does? One that's really alive? It doesn't go after God because of what you might get. It goes after God because of who he is. Because he's God. Because that's exactly who he is. It's not a religion type of faith. It's a relation type of faith. Did you see what the summation of Abraham's life of giving up what mattered most to him was? And he was called the friend of God. Now contrast that, and we will, in chapter 4, when James talks about being a friend of the world. You adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And so he's going to juxtapose those two things. He's going to say, hey, this is friend of the world, and look how they live. But if you're really a friend of God, if you're like Abraham, and being a friend of God is a revelatory term, meaning God shows you things, what he's going to do. He talks with you. He gives you revelation. You have a relationship with him. See, that's what real faith is like. It's not a religion of coming to church to get stuff from God or keep from having bad things happen. It's coming to church because you're his friend and you want to talk with him, and you walk with him, and you want to please him, and you love him, and you want to show that you do that by the way you treat other people. See, that's what James says. Even when it matters most to you, Isaac was his only son. Genesis 22 says it was the son that he loved, but he didn't keep anything from him. See, that's the friendship part. Religion, I'll keep stuff to myself. I just want God to come in and help me in these areas. But see, Abraham says when you're really justified, when you really have works that prove it, you're not keeping anything from God. There aren't any little closets or areas that are hands off and you say, God, you can touch this but not this. That's not how it works with a faith that's alive. It's totally different. See, there was no law. Read in the Bible, there is no law. In the Old Testament, it says that if you really love God, you have to sacrifice your son. There's no law. It was not a commandment. Then why did God tell him? And why does he tell you? You know why? Because he wanted to know if you would love him first. See, God was after Abraham's love. You're not justified by the law because there was no law. You're justified by love the love that you have for God, that you wouldn't keep anything from him, and your love for other people. See, in the same way, look at the text, in the same way, that's what he says about Rahab. Rahab, different life, different background, different story. And maybe that's not you. You're not the guy, the rich guy, the moral guy, the religious guy, the good guy. That's not you. Maybe you're more on the Rahab side. <laughs> and he says, it doesn't matter who you are. You're justified the same way. And the spies came in, and the Bible says she received them. She welcomed them. It's the term for hospitality. She welcomed them to her house, and she did it. And when she did, she risked life and limb. In other words, she was the only Canaanite in all of Jericho that was believing in the true God. And you know how she showed that she believed in the true God, the one God, and not all the polytheistic gods of Canaanite? What she did, she welcomed in spies, lied for them, hid them at risk of life and limb. She was willing, like Abraham, to sacrifice what meant most to her, even her whole life, her own life. That's the vital sign. You see, you take Abraham's spiritual pulse, 
And you take the blood pressure spiritually of Rahab, and you'll see that it's great. And you can tell they're alive. Why? Because their lives indicate it. Abraham had faith with works toward God. Rahab had faith with works toward people. And both proved the reality of that faith by the willingness they had to sacrifice for God and others. God sacrificed not just Abraham. God himself sacrificed his own son. In Romans 8.32 it says, He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? God sacrificed his son Jesus, not just willing to sacrifice, and then the knife was stopped, like Abraham. No, the greater Abraham, God, sacrificed the greater Isaac, Jesus, and there was no call to stop the knife. He was crucified for us. And because of that, Romans 8 goes on to say that because of that kind of love, nothing can ever separate us from him. Nothing. Can I tell you, shouldn't that move us? See, I don't need to have God do anything for me. The fact that he loves me like that and forgives me and gave his life for me, how can I not want to do everything for him? See, I just want to love him back every day. Don't you? Let me ask you, is that you? Is that the kind of faith you have? Because that's the kind of faith that's alive. The other kind is dead. And the question James wants you to ask this morning is which faith do you have? Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed, please, and no one looking around, and you're here this morning perhaps on the main floor or on the balcony, maybe this is your first time. Maybe you've been here Sunday after Sunday. We're going to sing a song day by day as our conclusion song, and I'm going to be standing right down here in front. We don't do this often, but today we are. You've seen the two kinds of faith compared and contrasted in James 2. One is dead and one is alive. And I think probably by now you're pretty clear, if you're honest with yourself, which one you have or perhaps don't have. And I want to give you a chance to respond. That's what James is looking for. And you'd have to say this morning, Pastor Walker, I know what I think, I believe, and I may even shudder, but I don't know that my life gives any indication or proof or expression or demonstration that my faith is real. But I so want that to be true. I so need that to be true. I'm going to ask you to come forward this morning. Coming forward, walking down an aisle doesn't save anybody. All it means is you need some help, and we're going to provide it for you. That's all it means. But maybe you're young, or maybe you're older. Maybe you've been in this church for a long time. Maybe you haven't been. Maybe you've been in other churches, or maybe you haven't been to church at all. It doesn't matter. We're all justified the same way. I bid you this morning out of love to come. Come. Come and let someone take the scriptures and show you how that you can be justified by faith, but not by a faith that is alone. A life-transforming faith that you can know that you have eternal life, that you can know it, not because of what you do, but because of what he's done. But let me tell you this. Christ does a work in you 
so that you can do a work, so we can do a work through you. And if both aren't true, that's probably why you're questioning. Would you settle that this morning? Don't go on any longer without that validity, that assurance that you can have. You come forward. We'll pray with you, talk with you, help you in any way we can. Would you do that whether you're in the balcony or the main floor? Either way, don't be worried what anyone else thinks. You come and find real faith in him. Father, help us. You said in the song we sang today that you would, in our helpless estate, that you would be there. That in our weakness, you would show your power. Father, I pray now by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would so move people, give them brokenness, a godly sorrow and repentance. Give them regeneration if they don't know you, that they might have a real faith. Oh God, may they come this morning and be welcomed. Welcomed into the family of God because of the work of Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.